then, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Let anyone with ears, with ears, let them hear. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. I will always be grateful for Mr. Adelino's humanities class that I took in the 10th grade at Plantation High School. Mr. Adelino introduced me to Socrates' dictum, Know Thyself. And that little, that little dictum opened the path for my starting to figure out, well, who am I? And that led me to Jesus a couple of years later. I'm so grateful. The, you know, the trick with Socrates, though, was that, according to him, you can only know it's been a good and noble life when you get to the end and look back on it. But the Bible's perspective is a little different, isn't it? As we read and as we sang in Psalm 139 this morning. And the truth of Psalm 139 is affirmed by millennia of reflection by thoughtful Jews and Christians. You personally bear the imprint, the fingerprints of God himself. Now, you're not God, but you reflect him. But it's, at the same time, you're not, you're not a, just a ball of dust either. You're, and you're not simply a product of your genes or your family history or your country of origin. You personally are his child. In the verses that we, for some unimaginable reason, skip in our lectionary, you're fearfully and wonderfully made formed by God's finger in your mother's womb, and then is nicely amplified in the Book of Common Prayer, not just wonderfully created, but yet more wonderfully restored in Christ Jesus. Today's passages in Genesis and the Gospel, they invite me to reflect on two things that Jesus has had to address in my own life as I think about what Psalm 139 means for me. One, the sloth of an imagination imprisoned by a this-worldly perspective, and two, the pride of thinking that it's our job to do God's final sorting out of things on our own. First, from Genesis, some thoughts on the slothfulness of a purely this-worldly perspective. Genesis 28 talks about a stairway from heaven. While Jacob sleeps, and often really good things happen in the imagination when you sleep, while Jacob sleeps, he sees a stairway between heaven and earth, while angels ascend and descend. While that's going on, the Lord appears to him and promises protection from a potentially vengeful brother. Vast lands and innumerable, innumerable offspring then in John's gospel, Jesus raises the ante using, using this very image. At the, at the approach of a most skeptical Nathaniel, Jesus proclaims, ah, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. John chapter 1 verse 51. And then immediately afterwards, Nathaniel witnesses the beginning of Jesus' conquest of the gap between heaven and earth. 
while while Jesus turns water of mere purification into wine of the promise of celebration at the wedding of heaven and earth. Uh, Jesus comes to challenge the imagination of someone like me, raised to trust only what you can see, touch, taste, smell, verify. Challenge to the sloth of my imagination, the closeness of it. Okay, so there's no stairway that we can climb to heaven. Sorry, Led Zeppelin. But there is a stairway that has come down to bring heaven to us, to fold us into heaven's story, to make us part of heaven's story, and yes, to make us fit for heaven's life beginning right now. The Bible challenges me as I think about who I am to believe the unimaginable. The choir is getting ready to go to uh, Durham, England to sing for a week in the, um, in the uh, cathedral at Durham. And we'll be singing Evensong six times. One of the anchor pieces of the Evensong service, as you may know, is Mary's Magnificat. Talk about a challenge to believe the unbelievable. What that little Jewish girl sang. Now, we're learning, we're singing even songs six times, so we're learning six different versions of the Magnificat. One of them will be sung during today's offering. And just having those words in these different musical versions of it just pour over and over my soul over and over again just make me stop and consider the likeness of that little girl to the God that has touched her and what the likeness between her and me should be. My soul doth magnify the Lord. And my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior, for he hath regarded the lowliness of his handmaiden. For behold, from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed, for he that is mighty hath magnified me, me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is on them that fear him throughout all generations. Mary's dignity is a dignity God would share with all of us and each of us. A song that I dearly love is um, called Made for Glory, Built Built to Last by the Lost Dogs on their album, Scenic Roots. And it tells a story that begins this way. Found an old man lying on the street, thought I'd do my good deed. I wrapped my coat around him and brought him food to eat. With labored breath, he struggled, but his eyes held heaven's light. And he whispered, young man, don't feel bad for me. It'll all work out all right. Because I was built for glory. I was made to last. God formed these feet to walk golden streets when this hard life is past. Say, he's doing well on the other side, if anybody asks. Say, I was built for glory. I was made to last. That's a song for each and every one of us. Now, the sloth of unbelief, the, the inability to imagine 
the truth of God's promises for us that last forever, the sloth of unbelief has its twin, its evil twin, in the pride of self-righteous certainty. Matthew's, Matthew's parable today of the wheat and the tares, older language, or the wheat and the weeds. After the fall, and before the Lord comes back, Jesus is saying there will always be a mix of wheat and weeds, of wheat and tares. Now, God's going to take care of it in his own time, all of it, and in his own way. But meanwhile, God himself can be patient with his enemies' ultimately futile attempts to resist him. And so can we. And we can sing with Mary the second part of her song, he hath showed strength with his arm. He hath scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He hath put down the mighty from their seat and hath exalted the humble and meek. He hath filled the hungry with good things and the rich he hath sent empty away. He, remembering his mercy, hath holpen Israel as he promised to our forefathers, Abraham and his seed forever." We sing her song now, even while, there's a, while there is a mix out there in the world. We sing her song in faith and hope while there's a mix in here. I mean, in my own heart. Alexandra Solzhenitsyn's The Gulag Archipelago is turning 50 years old. And from within the Gulag system, Souls and eats and realized the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties, but right through every human heart. This truth, Souls and eats and learned in prison and realized he could have only learned it in prison. And so he says, I nourished my soul there and say without hesitation, bless you, prison, for having been in my life. And we sing Mary's song while there's a, while there's a mix within these walls. Yeah, I mean you all. I mean us all. Jesus means that until his return, there's no perfect society there's no perfect church. There's no perfect me. Yeah, I'm sorry. There's no perfect you. Before the consummation of all things, before the great wedding banquet and the Son of Man sorting out of all things, there is a sloppy already and not yet. And that's what Paul talks about in Romans 8. Already, as Paul says, we have been adopted and so the Spirit calls out within us, Abba, Father, thank you that because of Christ's sacrifice and his resurrection, my sins have been taken care of and I'm your child. But not yet have we entered into the glory of the liberation of the sons and daughters. And so by that same spirit that allows us to call out Abba, Father, we groan within ourselves while we wait the completion of our adoption, the redemption of our bodies, 
and this sad planet's final transformation into a new heavens and new earth. There's this memorable boat ride that Jesus shares with his disciples. You'll read about it in a couple of weeks in the daily office, which is, I know you all, we all do. And it's not the story where Peter walks on water. No, this is, this one's a little bit more mundane. This is one where following Jesus' feeding of the 4,000 and the 5,000, the disciples realize, to their embarrassment, that they've gotten in the boat, but they forgot to bring enough food to bring them, to feed themselves. They only have one loaf among themselves. And Jesus seizes upon this moment to teach them the significance of the feedings that they've just witnessed. He's demonstrated that he is the bread from heaven and food for the world. And then on the way to Jerusalem after this boat ride, he's going to explain that the way of the cross, his and theirs, is the way of life and peace. In anticipation of that teaching, he warns them against the alternatives. In Mark chapter 8, verse 15, he says, Beware the yeast of the Pharisees and the yeast of Herod. On the one hand, he's warning those in the boat with him against a graceless piety like that of the Pharisees. Those who attempt to climb a stairway to heaven by graceless piety, stiff-necked rule-keeping. On the other hand, Jesus warns his disciples against a secular worldliness like that of Herod's family. Those who make peace with earthly powers and live as lavish a life as possible. Later, in his Olivet Discourse, Jesus will warn against a third group, the Zealots, who mount armed resistance against the evil Roman occupiers. And when the Jewish-Roman war emerges, Jesus says, flee to the wilderness. Once the temple's work of anticipating Christ's final sacrifice is over and the new construction of a house of God's, for God's dwelling made up of Jews and Gentiles has begun, let God bring down the old house in his own way, even if he uses the ungodly Romans. Jesus warns against the way of armed rebellion and insurrection against the unjust and godly Roman authorities. It's simply not your fight he insists. The cash value for me, having sat before Psalm 139, the cash value for me, what's it mean for me? I offer it for whatever value it may be for you. I reject the way of the Pharisees. Some years before his death, the brilliant Presbyterian pastor in Manhattan, Tim Keller, warned his fellow Presbyterian pastors, of whom I was one at the time, he warned them against, he warned us against, the spirit of gracelessness that causes church splits. You could write the history of the Presbyterian church and title it, The History of the Split Peas. The spirit of gracelessness that leads to one split after another, it carries over and causes us to look for new reasons, for new splits. And so, I've come to realize, contrary to the spirit of the Pharisees, there's no perfectly cleansed church for now. 
we pray together until God gives us in his time oneness of mind. I reject the way of Herod. I will not proclaim, nor will I practice to the best of my ability, a compromised so-called gospel of your best life now. Get you, get you, get you some. And third, I reject the way of the zealots. I do not think we should be about forcefully forcing our way, whether it's cleaning out the swamp or pick some other metaphor. Jesus's way is not the way of the blade or the bullet. His is not the way of the guillotine or the gallows. I embrace and offer to you for what it's worth. What seems to me what Jesus is driving at when he talks about the righteous shining like the sun in the kingdom of the Father. What the church is to be about. The way of waiting. The way of being content to tell the story of how the way of Christ's cross is the way of life and of peace. To sing his grace. To pray his kingdom come. To offer the bread and wine in advance of that kingdom. To welcome the stranger as though the stranger were Christ, for the stranger is Christ. And to extend to one another the embrace, the counsel, and the kiss of peace. And the peace of God be with you. Amen.